Our first uh, scripture reading is from a passage of, from the Bible of which you're probably very familiar. It is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It may be a passage that was read at your wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, which in fact is the entire chapter. So listen to this portion of God's word. Paul writing says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I've uh, sort of followed the college football bowl season with the the last game, the biggest game being tomorrow night, um, the one thing that I think I've appreciated maybe more than anything else is the passion of these young men in their love for the game of football. And all you have to do is just look at their sweaty faces and their dirty uniforms to know that these uh, student athletes have an excitement of being part of a team, of uh, playing hard, and of trying to help their team try to win the game. But you know, for at least some of these, a few of these uh, players, the ones who are going to be going pro Uh, something's going to change. Something is going to happen. Because fast forward to the next year or even a few years after that, and some of these uh, same young men are now going to be in the NFL. And they may get benched for missing practice, or they may get fined for holding out, or they may get suspended for making negative comments about the church, uh, the coach, or uh, leaving their team in the middle of the game, like we saw last week in the Buccaneers-Jets game. But there's going to be agents and shoe endorsements and big contracts with all kinds of perks. There's also going to be 
groupies and leeches and hanger-oners. These, these players may be fundamentally better now that they're in the pros. They may make less mistakes on the field, but something wonderful will have been lost because what was once a white hot passion of their lives is now just a cold-blooded business. Well, friends, whether we're talking about sports or romance or your faith, there's something special about a first love. So the question that I want to serve up to you this morning, as I kind of launch us into the message, is how are we to restore our inner passion? What do you do when your get up and go has gone up and gone? That is the question that Jesus answers in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, by way of background, when it came to serving God, Ephesus was like a well-oiled machine. But along the way, they kind of became like professional athletes, jaded, and these Christians lost the love they had at first. So as I begin my sermon series this morning, I'd like for us to take a look at the first of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And this morning, we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along on the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. And friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It must have been an awesome experience to have that messenger sail in the port holding in his hand John's letter as he found himself smack dab in the middle of the greatest city of that time, Ephesus, a booming population of over 300,000 people. And a visitor to Ephesus would not only have been impressed by this cosmopolitan, uh, hustling, bustling city, but also with its breathtaking grandeur. Ephesus had a huge sports stadium, it had the ancient library of Celsus, and it had a 25,000-seat amphitheater for concerts and plays. But the crown jewel of Ephesus was the Temple Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And built in 550 BC out of pure marble, the Temple of Diana was 337 feet long, which is longer than a football field. 
and it had 100 marble columns jutting up into the sky. If you were to pick up a brochure from the Ephesus Chamber of Commerce, they would have proudly proclaimed their city as the greatest, most popular, and wealthiest city of its time. Well, believe it or not, the church in Ephesus was every bit as impressive as the city. For example, for three years, they had as their pastor none other than the Apostle Paul himself. Now, wouldn't you love to have gone to Bible study in that church? In fact, Paul's preaching was so powerful that it hurt the local economy because people stopped buying the little figurines of the goddess Diana. And so the silversmiths' union rioted against Paul, got him out of town, and then Paul turned the reins over to his young protege, Timothy. Another thing you need to know about this church is that one of its longtime members was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who came with John the Apostle. Remember, remember those last words of Jesus from the cross was Jesus telling John to take care of Mary, his mother. The point is, this is a great church founded by the Apostle Paul, pastored by Timothy and the Apostle John, and then it had Mary, the mother of Jesus, as one of its members. And Jesus pours on the compliments. You heard me read. He said, I know your works, your toil. In the Greek, it means your exhausting, strenuous labor. Today, we would say that Ephesus is an active, vibrant church with ministries and programs for people of all ages. This is a 24-7 church where there are things going on in that church day and night, seven days of the week. So these weren't just people who came and occupied a seat on Sunday morning. This church had some real go-getters. And Jesus says, I know you're working hard. I know that you're not some, some kind of country club church. You're out serving the people. You're caring for the community. You are burning the candle at both ends to bring glory to God. Not only that, but it also says, I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. In other words, you're, you're not into the latest trendy, feel-good Christianity. You are holding on tight to the essential aspects of the faith. And then he goes on to say, I know your patient endurance. It was a dangerous thing to be a Christian in the church in Ephesus. You know that sports stadium I talked about earlier? That was actually the site of torture and execution for Christians. The, the Surgeon General's warning might have read, following Jesus Christ could be hazardous to your health. Oh, but these were people hung tough, they persevered, they endured hardships for Christ. So this was a great church. They, they were strong in suffering, they were orthodox in their faith, and they were busy in service. What more could you ever ask for in a church? If Jesus ever came here and gave that kind of message to us at Chestnut Level, you would see me doing backflips down the aisle. But unfortunately, that is not the end of the letter as Jesus has more to say to that church in Ephesus. He says to them, oh, and by the way, there's one more thing. You don't love me like you once did. Oh, no. Jesus says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or in the words of that old hit song by the Righteous Brothers, 
you've lost that love and feeling. Billy Graham was in Moscow several years ago for one of his evangelistic crusades. And right at the end of the service, Billy did what he always used to do, and that was to have an altar call in which he would invite people to come forward to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. And so Billy Graham said, now is the time for you to come forward and accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But this time he said, as you come down, don't run, don't push, don't knock down the people around you, Take your time, we will wait for you. It seems that the previous night, throngs of people had come forward and stampeded the stage. The people were so excited that some of them had actually gotten hurt in the crush to come forward to accept Jesus Christ into their hearts. I just have to tell you that that's only happened two or three times after one of my sermons. And no one ever got hurt, thankfully. Sometimes I think as Presbyterians, we get just a little too sophisticated to love God with that same kind of reckless passion. Because if you think about it, is there anything much sadder than the phrase, you have abandoned the love you had at first? Now, unfortunately, it seems that the place that we all too often hear about people losing the love they once had is in relationships. Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand sang that duet, you don't bring me flowers, you don't sing me love songs, you hardly talk to me anymore when I come to the door at the end of the day. I remember when you couldn't wait to love me, you couldn't wait to see me. It used to be so natural to talk about forever, but used to be's don't count anymore. They just lay on the floor till we sweep them away. So now here we are in the book of Revelation, And the risen Christ is singing that same love song to his beloved bride, the church. He says, I remember when you couldn't wait to worship me. You couldn't wait to come to Sunday school and grow and learn more about me. You couldn't wait to give of yourself, your time, your talents, your offerings. Now you hardly talk to me anymore in your prayer life. And used to be's don't count anymore. They just lay on the floor till we sweep them away. The church in Ephesus had lost its passion, the passion they used to have for Jesus Christ, and it seemed like they were just going through the motions in their life of faith. They had become stuck in a rut. They were spinning their wheels. It had become routine, ritualistic. They were no longer moved in their souls by the wonder of God's love for them. You know, in thinking about this week, not sure we're all that different, are we? Oh, we fill out forms and we may put Christian on them. Or on our Facebook page, we may even put down Presbyterian. But you know, that's about as far as it goes. We subscribe to the Apostles' Creed, but with all the emotion with which we also subscribe to People Magazine. We, we, we say the Lord's Prayer together, but with all the gusto with which we read a manual on how to change the oil in our car. Now I heard this, Eugene Ormandy once um, was the conductor for the Philadelphia Orchestra and he dislocated his shoulder while directing a piece of music. 
Now, I'm not saying that our music director, Eric Welchin, should have uh, that kind of injury come upon him. But, you know, that, that speaks to a passion for music. That speaks to a love for music. And friends, I believe that that's what God wants from us as his children. He doesn't just want our works, but he wants our hearts to be aflame in love for him. And so Jesus gives the church in Ephesus, I think to you and me sitting here, some life-changing words to rekindle our relationship with Christ and hopefully with one another. And the first thing that Jesus says is you got to remember. Remember. There's a certain spell that's cast over us when we remember specific events or circumstances in our lives. Maybe an old familiar song that takes us back down memory lane, or it may be a picture in a family photo album that has this chubby little toddler in it. And guess what? That chubby little toddler is you. Or maybe the crack of the bat when we hit our first home run. It may be our first dance recital. Or in sadness, it may be that we're carried back to a time when we are standing on the wet, soft soil of a grave where we had to say goodbye to a loved one. But from one end of the Bible to the other, God commands the people to dust off the rust from their memory banks. It was Moses who said to the people, remember this day of which you came out of Egypt. The psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Now, here we are in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, and Jesus says, remember, remember. What I think that Jesus is saying is to remember the faithfulness of God in your life. Frederick Buechner is a, uh, was a pastor, author, and he wrote a book called A Room Called Remember. And he tells about a dream that he had where he was in his hotel room, and it's the greatest hotel room that he'd ever been in his whole life. He loves that room. He loves being in that room. It's a fabulous room. But the next time he goes to that hotel, he's in a terrible room. He's in the worst room he's ever been in. He hates that room. And so he goes down to the hotel lobby, goes to the desk where there's the clerk. He tells the clerk, I hate this room that I'm in. I want to be in the room that I was in before. The clerk says, no problem. All you have to do is ask for it. And so the man says, okay, I want to go back to that room that I was in before. The clerk says, sure, gives him the key. And the man starts to leave, but he has this kind of puzzled look on his face. And he turns around and goes back to the clerk. He says, you know, I'm going to want to be in this room again. Would you tell me the name of this room? And the clerk says, it's the room called Remember. And you can have it anytime you want. Now, Frederick Buechner, in his book, uses his dream as a kind of a parable because God has told us to remember, to remember, to remember his goodness, to remember his faithfulness, which means that we don't have to continue to languish in pain and sorrow and suffering and despair. We don't have to be mired in the molasses of our own making. We can go to a room called remember, and it is in that place that we are strengthened by the love and grace of Christ. Another thing that Jesus says to the folks in the church of Ephesus is to repent, repent. Now, I find it interesting that originally the word repentance actually had no religious significance at all. 
In Bible times, when there were no maps, no signs, no GPS on your phone, people found it very easy to get lost out in the desert. And so a person may be wandering out in the desert and say, hey, nothing looks familiar around here. I had better stop and turn around. And that's repentance. It means turning around. It means I'm heading in one direction. I'm stopping in my tracks. I'm doing a 180 degree turn. And then I'm going in the opposite direction. This is for the guys. Have you ever been in your car out driving somewhere and like a NASCAR racer, you found yourself doing five consecutive left turns, at which point your wife says, honey, are you lost? And you know, guys, what you say defiantly, defensively, you say, no, I'm not lost. And then your spouse will say what no loving spouse should ever say, well, why don't you stop and ask for directions? I mean, to have to go to the gas station guy or the person in the convenience store is to admit defeat. But that's exactly what repentance is. Because in the Bible, you do not have a relationship with God without repentance. From Genesis to Revelation, repentance is the starting point of your relationship with God. So this morning, if you are someone who is in the wrong place at the wrong time, moving in the wrong direction, with the wrong people around you. For heaven's sake, stop and turn around, repent. And then finally, Jesus says, renew. He says, do the things you did at first. The psychologist, Dr. George Crane, tells the story of a woman who came to his office and she was seething with rage toward her husband. She said, I not only want to get rid of him, but I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to make him as miserable as he has made me. So Dr. Crane had this rather interesting suggestion. He said, well, I'll tell you how you can do that. He said, when you go home, I want you to try to get your husband to fall in love with you again. Just do the things to make him love you all over again and make him think that you can't live without him. And then you'll say, aha, I've been faking it all along. I don't really love you. Here are the divorce papers because I'm out of here. Oh, the woman's eyes just lit up. She loved the idea. She said, it'll just kill him. And so she went home and she tried to do what the doctor had recommended. The funny thing is that next week she missed her appointment with Dr. Crane. And so Dr. Crane got on the telephone and said, well, are you ready to go through with the divorce? And the woman said, divorce? Are you kidding? I am head over heels in love with that guy. Her actions had changed her feelings. Her emotion um, had come through in a powerful way. And that's why Jesus says, do the things you did at first. As I close, I wanna ask this question. Can you remember a time in your life when you felt closer to God than you do today? And as you think about that, what was it about that moment that seems different than today? And I don't know you all well enough to know what that moment was, but here's what I will say to you. Whatever it was, go and do the things you did at first. Fan the flames of that love. Remember, repent, renew, so that you can get back that loving feeling. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. God, we thank you for 
your words that come to us from this strange, unusual book of Revelation. But God, thank you for the clarity in helping us to rekindle that passion that we had for you once before and so need to have again. And so, Lord, help us to remember, help us to repent, and help us to renew and reignite that passion for you so that we may be filled with the light and life and love of Jesus Christ as we pray it in his holy name. Amen.